Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join the Doctor and Joe as they take their first trip in the TARDIS to a colony in space. We will be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on the story. So, to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Paddy, I will hand over to you for our sixth episode recap. That is correct. It is a six-parter. In that case, off you go. Thank you. Episode one. On the Time Lord homeworld, three members of the High Council discussed the theft of a file pertaining to an artifact called the Doomsday Weapon. They believed the theft to have been the work of the Master, and they resolved to use the Doctor as their agent in order to stop him. At Unit HQ, the Doctor is putting the finishing touches on a new dematerialization circuit, but neither Joe nor the Brigadier think it will work. The Brigadier then gets a phone call informing him that one of his agents has a lead on the whereabouts of the Master, but the Doctor is dubious of it, as previous leads have proved to be fruitless. The Doctor finishes the circuit and then invites Joe into the TARDIS, and she's amazed that it's bigger on the inside. He installs the new circuit, but before he can do anything, the doors close and the TARDIS starts to take off. Joe demands to be let out, but the Doctor, realising that the Time Lords have taken remote control of the ship, says that there is nothing that he can do as they are now in the Time Vortex. The Brigadier returns from speaking with his agent, which turned out to be another dead end, and he calls out for the Doctor to come back as he watches the TARDIS dematerialise. The Doctor turns on the external view screen and shows Joe the immaterium of the Time Vortex, but the image is soon replaced by one of a planet, which the Doctor identifies as Uxarius. On the planet's surface, a survey robot makes its way across the rocky terrain and the TARDIS lands in the area it has just left. Joe asks to be let out, but the Doctor tells her to wait while he examines the atmosphere for toxins. The scans show that the atmosphere is similar to that of Earth before the invention of the motor car, and so he opens the doors. Upon realising that she is indeed on an alien planet, she asks to be taken home, but the Doctor convinces Joe to take a quick look around, saying that he has been in exile for far too long, and after they are finished, he will take her home. They go outside and begin to examine some flowers on the ground when they notice the tracks left by the robot. The doctor suggests climbing to higher ground to get a better view of the things and he convinces the scared Joe that everything will be alright. Unbeknownst to them, they are being observed by a green-skinned, spear-wheeling humanoid who starts to examine the TARDIS after they have gone. Joe points out some prefabricated huts on top of the nearby hills but stops the doctor from going to investigate them, saying that they should go back to the TARDIS instead. The doctor agrees but stops to examine some strange-looking rocks before they go. As they are doing this, a man wielding a rifle sneaks up on them and takes them captive. In one of the huts, a group of settlers are debating the presence of alien life on the planet. Ash, the settler who surveyed the planet before they arrive, says he found no sign of life during his scans, but Martin and his wife say that they saw something large and reptilian prowling around outside their hut and they had to scare it away with gunfire. Ash instructs one of the other settlers, David, to round up a few men and go investigate outside Martin's hut. The Doctor and Joe are then brought in by their captor, who is named Leeson, who claims that they are mineralogists sent by one of the big mining corporations. The Doctor denies this, saying that they are simply explorers, but can't produce any identification papers to prove it. He offers to take Ash to the TARDIS to verify his claims, but Ash says that they will stay the night in the hut, and instead go in the morning. He assigns Leeson's wife to fix up a sleeping area for them, and the Doctor tells Joe to go with her. He notices the crop records on a nearby wall and confirms that due to the low yield evidence in the records, the colony is close to starvation. Joe is taken to the canteen where some of the colonists are debating whether or not they should be better off back on Earth, where despite the totalitarian government and poor conditions, they at least had plenty of food. 
she is joined by Mary, Ash's daughter, who, after a compliment on Joe's clothing, reveals that the year is 2472. Meanwhile, back at the TARDIS, more of the humanoids have arrived and hauled the ship away. At Leeson's hut, Leeson and his wife are discussing life on the settlement and the arrival of the Doctor and Joe when they suddenly hear a roaring sound from outside. They go to take a look and see a large reptilian creature outside. Leeson goes outside with his rifle to scare it off, while his wife radios for her help from the main hut. She hears her husband stop firing, and when she goes for her own gun, she sees an unknown person standing in the doorway. In the main hut, Ash and the Doctor are discussing the failure of the harvests, which are unusual given the fact that the soil seems to be capable of sustaining healthy growth. Mary and Joe rush in and tell them about the attack on the Leeson hut. Ash tells Mary to call David and his men and send them to the Leeson hut, and the Doctor offers to go with him. The Doctor tells Joe to stay behind, and she questions Mary about the fact that the attacks have only recently begun, despite the colony being over a year old. At the Leeson's hut, Ash and the Doctor arrive to find the couple dead, and David's tells them that the creature didn't seem to notice their bullets and when they got closer it seemed to disappear. Ash says that if they wounded it then they would be able to track the blood in the morning but the doctor calls their attention to a set of claw marks on one of the walls which are too small for the creature David described seeing. Later at a meeting of the colonists everyone begs Ash to move the colony to a different planet but he refuses. The doctor supports his stance saying that an outside influence is causing their crops to fail. After a brief back and forth, the colonists agree to stay and fight on, but before they start planning to defend against the creatures, Mary brings in a wounded man that was found by one of their patrols. He says he's from another colony on the far side of the planet, but he is the sole survivor after he was attacked by giant lizards. Ash and the Doctor go back to Leeson's hut where they encounter two of the green-skinned humanoids scavenging the wreckage. Ash stops them from attacking and informs the Doctor that apart from a misunderstanding that resulted in the deaths of two colonists when they first arrived, they are generally peaceful but uncommunicative. The Doctor thinks that given their understanding of Ash, they are most likely telepathic in some way. The primitives depart and the Doctor starts to look around for more clues as to what is affecting the crops. Ash leaves him in order to go back to the meeting with the other colonists. Not long after he leaves, a large robot similar to the survey one enters the hut and advances on the Doctor, flailing its vicious claw-like arms at him. Episode 2 The Doctor recoils from the machine, but it stops just before it hits him when it is ordered to by a man in a red and black uniform carrying a machine gun. The man apologises to the Doctor and asks about what happened in the hut. The Doctor simply says that there was an attack and asks the man who he is. He identifies himself as Caldwell, a representative of IMC, the Interplanetary Mining Corporation, who has just begun a mining survey of the planet, and he claims that they were unaware of the presence of the colony. He seems suspicious of the Doctor, and forcibly suggests that the Doctor accompany him back into the spaceship. As they leave, Caldwell comments on it being lucky that no one was hurt, but the Doctor shocks him when he reveals the deaths of the Leesons. He orders the robot, which he calls Charlie, to follow them, and both he and the Doctor head off on his cart. En route, they pass the place where the TARDIS was, and the Doctor is stunned to find it missing. Back at the colony, the survivor, whose name is Norton, is being fed and questioned by David and Joe. He says that the lizards killed the majority of his fellow colonists, and the rest were killed by the primitives, who he says took advantage of their weakened state. Joe seems confused by this, but David reveals their own earlier encounters with the primitives, and he says that Ash needs to move the colony to another world. Joe says the Doctor will be able to solve their crop issues, and Norton starts to ask her questions about their origin and if they have any ties to Earth's government. One of the primitives enters the canteen, and Norton picks up a rifle to shoot it, but he is stopped by Ash, who says that they have a truce with the primitives. David says the truce will only last as long as Ash continues to feed them, which is putting the others at risk due to the limited supplies. 
Ash says that while he is in charge, he is to be obeyed. A sentiment echoed by Joe after he leaves, which causes David to suggest that maybe it was a mistake to put him in charge. In the IMC spaceship, Captain Dent and one of his subordinates, Morgan, are discussing the results from a preliminary survey which indicates the planet is rich in the mineral Durlinium. They are alerted to the arrival of Caldwell and the Doctor, and Dent says that they will use their usual cover story, which is to express surprise at the presence of colonists on the planet. Caldwell leaves the Doctor in the entertainment room, and he joins Dent and Morgan, where he berates the latter for killing the colonists when he only was tasked with scaring them. Morgan says that he did it in self-defense as they fired at him, and says that they won't be any more deaths once the colonists are forced off the planet. Dent tries to further assuage Caldwell's anger by showing the survey report and how wealthy he will be after IMC starts his mining operations there. Caldwell agrees to carry on with their plans, but only after Dent assures him that there will be no more deaths. Dent then goes to speak to the Doctor, who is watching a film reel about the current population and housing crisis on Earth. The Doctor asks if they are preparing to leave, but Dent says that the planet isn't fit for colonisation due to the dangerous wildlife in the area. The Doctor says that it can be dealt with, and although he reveals that he isn't a colonist, he infers that he has their interest at heart. Dent says mineral resources on the planet are needed for the people on Earth, but the Doctor retorts by saying that the people on Earth need to be allowed to colonise more planets in order to live better lives than the ones they have on Earth. Dent says that they are at an impasse, and the Doctor turns the conversation to the missing TARDIS, which Dent says he will check to see if they have any information on. Dent returns to the office and informs Morgan that he thinks the Doctor is a spy for the government and orders him to return the Doctor to Leeson's hut and kill him, making it seem like one of the lizards did it. Morgan collects the Doctor, who is confused that neither Dent nor Caldwell returned, saying that he has been sent to organise a meeting between Dent and Ash, but first he wants to investigate Leeson's hut. En route, they are stopped by a trio of primitives, and Morgan tries to shoot him, but the Doctor stops him. He catches a spear thrown by one of the primitives and then uses it to engage in combat with the others. The Doctor easily bests them, leaving them all unconscious, and he and Morgan then resume their journey. Back at the colony, Joe and Mary are preparing the evening meal, and they tell Ash that David is showing Norton around the colony, with Joe saying that he seems to have recovered very quickly. David shows Norton the power control room, which is currently being operated by Holden, the chief engineer, and his primitive assistant. They then return to the canteen, and Norton comments on the fact that the old equipment being used in the power room must be dangerous, and Mary confirms that it is, echoing statements made by Holden. She then tells him about Ash looking for them, and David says he will go to meet him, whilst Norton goes to rest. Instead, Norton returns to the power control room and beats the primitive with a wrench before killing Holden with its spear. He then rushes to Ash's office, where Joe and Mary have also just arrived, and he brings them back to the power room, where he says that he saw the primitive attack Holden, and then he had to hit him in self-defense. Ash notices the damage done to the power relays, and Norton says that Holden must have tried to stop the primitive from interfering with them. Ash says that without holding the colony's power supply would be useless. On the IMC ship, Caldwell realises that Dent has sent the Doctor to be killed, but Dent blackmails him into obedience by mentioning the debts he has back on Earth. The Doctor and Morgan arrive back at the hut, and the Doctor reveals his suspicions of the attack being staged to look like a wild animal attack. Morgan pulls a gun on him and then summons a robot into the hut, which has replicas of lizard's claws on its appendages, and he orders it to attack the Doctor. Episode 3. The Doctor manages to disarm Morgan, which also causes him to drop the remote control for the robot. The Doctor manages to retrieve it and stop the robot, but Morgan slips away as he does so. Back at the colony, Joe is trying to operate a manual pump in order to keep the power flowing into the main hut, whilst Mary contacts the outlying huts to inform them of what happened. 
Ash enters and says that Norton and David are still trying to fix the power relays. He also tells them that they only have enough charged power packs to last a few days. Joe asks him to try and find the doctor, saying that he will be able to help them. David enters just as the sound of an approaching spaceship fills the air. The IMC ship lands on outside the main building and Dent goes to meet the colonists. He informs Ash that according to IMC records, the planet has been granted to them for mining purposes. When Ash refutes this by saying that they have been given colonization rights, Dent says that they will need to send for an adjudicator. David objects to this, knowing that the IMC will strip the planet bare before a decision is reached due to the lengthy education periods. The Doctor suddenly enters the building and informs everyone about the fake attacks. Dent leaves, denying the Doctor's claims, and saying that he will send for an adjudicator at once. The Doctor is then informed about the damage to the power relays, and Ash agrees to help him find the TARDIS once he has helped them restore power. After he and Ash leave, Joe overhears Norton trying to sow doubt on the Doctor's claims, and Joe suggests boarding the IMC ship to find proof. On board the ship, Dent berates the newly returned Morgan for failing to kill the Doctor. Caldwell enters and demands that Dent send for the adjudicator, but they are interrupted by a message from Norton, who tells them about Joe and David boarding the ship. The duo are quickly captured by Dent and a squad of armed guards. Meanwhile, the Doctor has managed to fix the power relays and states that it looks like Norton was trying to further the damage done to them. Mary suddenly enters, saying that Dent wishes to speak to the Doctor about Joe, and he immediately goes to the ship. Dent informs him that Joe is under arrest for trespassing, but offers to drop the charges if the Doctor recants his story. The Doctor refuses, and Dent reveals that she and David are currently chained to a seismic mining charge, which he will detonate remotely unless the Doctor does as he says. The Doctor returns to the main building and informs Ash about Dent's threats. Ash says that they should try and find them, but the Doctor says that Dent is most likely surveilling the area and will blow the charge if he sees anyone looking for Joe and David. At the primitive dwelling where they are being held, David notices that there is still some packing grease left on the charge, and he and Joe use it to slip free of their manacles. Joe uses her training in escapology to get free, and David tells her to leave, but she refuses to leave without him. She uses a rock to try and smash the chains holding David, but the vibrations trigger a silent alarm on the charge, which is relayed back to the ship. Dent sends a message to the guard in the area, and he arrives just as the duo are about to flee. The guard shoots David, but Joe fights him off, allowing the wounded David to escape back to the colony. Dent orders Morgan to send some men to finish off David. The guards spot David as he flees across the valley, but are forced to follow him on foot as he climbs into the hills. He encounters Caldwell, who is at a temporary hut, and he resigns himself to his fate. However, Caldwell fires into the air and informs the guards that David is dead. Once they go, he brings David into the hut and treats his wounds. He then urges David to get the colonists to leave, telling them that the planet is the richest source of duralinium he has ever come across, and that IMC will stop at nothing to have it, including bribing the adjudicator. David arrives back just as Ash is planning a search party with the Doctor and the other colonists. He tells the worried Doctor that Joe is still a captive, and he says he intends to fight back and urges the others to join him. The Doctor asks him how he got away, and David tells him about Caldwell. The Doctor says he needs to speak to him, as he is their only chance of rescuing Joe. David directs him to Caldwell's hut, and once he is there, he informs Caldwell about a planned attack in the morning by the colonists. In order to avoid a slaughter, Caldwell agrees to help free Joe, and he goes back to the ship, where Dent has just been informed that an adjudicator is en route. Caldwell refuses to carry out the mining survey unless Joe is freed. Dent agrees, but tells Caldwell that his career is now over. However, a group of primitives enter the hut as the guard is releasing Joe, and they kill him when he shoots one of them. The primitives then take Joe away with them. 
Back at the colony, the Doctor urges David to call off the attack, but when he refuses, the Doctor instead offers to help them come up with a better plan. He also warns David and the others to be wary of Norton. Later, a Mary distracts the guards at the entrance to the ship, giving David and the Doctor a chance to knock them out and take their uniforms. They then sneak on board the ship, but are spotted by Morgan, who manages to activate the alarm. The other colonists board the ship and engage in a firefight with the IMC guards. The Doctor and David take Morgan captive and bring him into Dent's office, where they are informed that Joe has gone missing. The Doctor leaves David in charge, and he and Ash go to the ruins to try and find a clue as to Joe's whereabouts. Ash says that they will most likely have taken her to their city, which he warns is rumoured to be supposedly inhabited by strange creatures. Up in the hills, Joe is led through a secret doorway into a tunnel. Episode 4 Joe is brought into an ornate chamber filled with ancient computers, and she sees a small humanoid figure with grey skeletal features and a large exposed brain standing by one of them. Upon seeing the creature, she screams in fear. Meanwhile, Ash tells the doctor that he can attempt to buy Joe back from the premises and tells him to offer food from the colony as payment. The doctor thanks him, but as he is leaving, they hear the sound of an approaching ship. They look outside and see the craft start to descend and Ash states that it must be the adjudicator. Ash rushes back to the colony where Mary is speaking to the adjudicator over the radio. Ash speaks to him and tries to explain the recent developments but the adjudicator currently tells him to assemble both parties so he can meet them as soon as possible. Ash says they need to contact David to get him to release the prisoners as it could damage their case. On the IMC ship, David pries open a locked cabinet and finds a holographic projector inside which shows one of the giant lizards when he turns it on, as well as one of the claws that the robots were using. He informs Dent that he intends to use it as evidence against him. He then gets a call from Ash, who tells him about the adjudicator's orders, and David reluctantly frees the prisoners so that they can make their way to the meeting. Leeson's brother objects as he wants to get revenge for his brother's death, but David disarms him. Fearing for his life, Morgan reveals that Dent has killed colonists on other planets, and that the evidence is in a secret compartment in Dent's desk. However, it is actually a trick, and Morgan takes a hidden gun from inside the compartment and takes David hostage. Dent then takes David's rifle and demands that all his men be released. Meanwhile, the adjudicator arrives at the main building and is revealed to be the master. The doctor has made his way into the hills and he spots the entrance to the secret tunnel. Suddenly, he is surrounded by a group of primitives and he informs them that he has come to buy Joe back. He is taken to where she is kept prisoner and is locked in with her. Joe says that the primitives have gone to bring back their leader and then asks how they are going to escape. The doctor says that he is going to buy her back but then turns his attention to the technology in the room which he says must have been belonged to a highly advanced civilization. Joe shares his thoughts on the matter and shows him a large transparent frame filled with pictographs which the doctor says appears to be a history of the civilization on the planet. It appears that a great catastrophe occurred that caused the civilization to go into decline leading to its current primitive state. He says that the last series of pictographs resembled something akin to a sacrifice. The door opens and a, the grey creature enters the room flanked by a couple of the primitives. The doctor relays the offer from Ash, but the creature instead points at the pictographs showing the sacrifice, then orders his guards to follow him out of the room. A short while later, one of the primitives comes back to retrieve them. The doctor distracts him with a bit of close-up magic and then knocks him out. The duo leave as a procession of primitives and grey creatures make their way towards the cells. They flee down a side tunnel as the doctor says that the great creatures are nearly completely blind and this proves to be true when their escape is only noticed when he, one of them trips over the body on the unconscious primitive. However, they are soon caught after one of the primitives notices them and they are then taken to a chamber similar to the one shown in the sacrificial pictograph. 
Inside, they see what appears to be the root of the civilization, a stunted version of one of the great creatures. He speaks to them and demands to know why they are in the city. He says that all trespassers are to be executed, but the doctor protests, saying that they were brought in against their will and mean them no harm. The ruler lets them go out of respect for the doctor's intelligence, but warns them that if they return, they will be killed. Back at the colony, the adjudication process has begun, but unfortunately Dent ordered the incriminating evidence to be destroyed, and it is a case of word against word. The master blames the planetary assignment on a faulty computer from Earth, but before he can give his own ruling, the doctor and Joe return. The master adjourns the meeting, and the doctor confronts him in private, saying that he will expose him. The master says that his credentials will pass all but the most strenuous of security checks, whereas the doctor has nothing to prove who and what he is. The master says that so long as he doesn't interfere, he will not have the doctor and Joe arrested. He then returns to the meeting and rules in favour of IMC. Later, the IMC crew are drinking in celebration, and Caldwell asks what will happen if the colonists refuse to accept the ruling. Dent tells him that they will then be treated as rebels. Inside the colony, Norton tries to convince David to leave the planet, but David ignores him, and he argues with Ash about fighting the IMC and making the colony an independent republic. Ash refuses, but David says that they can't trust the law to help them. Ash informs the Doctor of David's decision, and the Doctor follows him as he goes to speak to the Master. Ash meets with the Master in private and asks if there is anything that can be done to reverse the ruling. The Master says that the only thing that can intervene now is a discovery of a site of historical significance. Ash then eagerly tells him about the primitive city. Unbeknownst to them, the Doctor and Joe are listening through the wall. Meanwhile, David places a call to the IMC ship, pretending to be the adjudicator, summoning them back to the colony to finalise the ruling. David then stations the colonists for a fight and sends Leeson's brother to find Norton. He discovers him trying to signal Dent and the two struggle over Leeson's gun. Norton manages to kill him, but his radio is broken in the struggle, and so he takes the gun and reports back to David, who sends him towards his position. The IMC crew enter the main building, but Norton calls out a warning before opening fire on the colonists. David kills him as the IMC crew take cover, and a vicious firefight begins. The Doctor and Joel run towards the sound of gunfire, with the Doctor saying that he wants to stop the bloodshed. However, they are stopped by the Master, who brandishes a pistol at them and says that they will be, unfortunately, victims caught in the crossfire. Episode 5 Ash and Mary appear, and the Master hides his pistol as Ash asks him to intervene. However, the fighting comes to an abrupt halt as David manages to sneak outside and flank the IMC crew, taking Dent hostage. The IMC crew drop their weapons and are then taken away by the colonists. David orders for the ones still on the ship to be locked into their quarters. Ash gives out to David, saying that they are now all criminals, but David again pushes to make the colony independent from Earth, and they can invite others from Earth that feel the same way. He tries to send the Master away, but he says that without him in his role as adjudicator, there will be no one to stop Earth sending a fleet to wipe out the colony. He repeats his offer to act on behalf of the colony in exchange for being brought to the primitive city. The Doctor tries to convince Ash of the Master's real identity, but the Master turns their suspicions on him instead, as he has no credentials. Joe arrives after the others leave, and the Doctor says that they will need to find proof to use against the Master on his TARDIS, which is now in the shape of the adjudicator's ship. He then reveals that he still has the key he took from the Master during their first encounter. David escorts the MC crew back to their ship, and he gloatingly tells them to leave the planet as the Master has reversed his decision. After he leaves, Dent orders a message to be sent to Earth to verify the Master's credentials. However, David radios through and says that unless they leave immediately, he will blow up the ship using some explosives that they took from the ship's armory. With no other choice, Dent orders the ship to take off, but keeps it in orbit above the planet.
At the master's TARDIS, the doctor stops Joe from tripping the silent alarm. They crawl under the alarm beam and they then begin their search. The doctor finds a file containing the mineral survey reports from several different planets. Joe manages to find the credentials belonging to the real adjudicator, but the doctor continues searching the TARDIS as he is curious as to what the master is planning. Joe urges him to go back to the colony before the master returns and accidentally trips the silent alarm. The master is notified of this and he activates a booby trap, filling the console room of the TARDIS with gas. The doctor notices that Joe has tripped the beam and they watch as the doors close and then they fall to the ground unconscious. Back at the colony, Ash shows the master the map to the primitive city and reveals the doctor and Joe are the only ones to have seen it. The master then excuses himself to go retrieve them from his TARDIS. He wakes up the doctor and tells him that he will hurt Joe unless the doctor takes him to the primitive city. Meanwhile, on the IMC ship, the verification check comes back revealing the master is an imposter and Dent orders the ship to land on the opposite side of the mountain range near the colony. He orders his men to prepare to assault the colony once it has gone dark, but Caldwell reminds him that the colonists took all their weapons. In Ash's office, Ash and David argue over Ash's reluctance to distribute the IMC guns to the colonists. Ash still insists they use the master's help and David storms off to go check on the sentries. However, after he passes the guards on the main gate, they are attacked by Morgan and the IMC crew. They make their way into Ash's office and Morgan holds him at gunpoint while the rest of the men reclaim their weapons. They then engage in a firefight when David alerts the colonists to the attack. However, Dent brings the fight into a stop when he threatens to kill Ash. Once the colonists are disarmed, Dent tells them that they will be tried for treason. The following morning in the Master's TARDIS, Joe is held in a cubicle and the Master says that if the Doctor tries anything, then he will flood the cubicle with deadly gas. As they leave though, the Doctor subtly drops the key to the TARDIS on the ground outside. They make their way to the city using one of the IMC jeeps, but find the path blocked by a pipe. A boulder is then rolled down the hill towards them and they dive for cover. The Doctor then points out a primitive preparing to throw a spear and the Master kills him with a laser pistol. Back at the colony, Dent has been legally appointed the governor of the planet and holds a trial for the colonists. Ash asks why the adjudicator isn't present, but Dent says that as of the original ruling, all decisions pertaining to the planet are his to make. Ash and David label the trial as a farce, but Dent says that because of their crimes, they could be executed, but offers to suspend the sentence instead if the colonists leave immediately. He orders them to prepare their ship, but Ash insists that the ship is old and is incapable of making another trip, which makes Dent's ruling a death sentence. Dent ignores him and orders him to follow his commands. Dent orders Mary to summon all the colonists and give them the instructions for their departure. Caldwell is sent to do a survey of the ship, and when he comes back, Mary berates him for knowingly sending them to their deaths. She begs him to help the colonists, but he walks away dejected. However, he goes to Dent and says the colonist ship could blow up on takeoff. Dent callously tells Morgan to clear all IMC personnel from the launch area, and then sends him and Caldwell to the Master's TARDIS to try and find him. They find it to be impossible to break into it, but Caldwell spots the key on the ground and then uses it to open the doors. However, he accidentally trips the alarm when he sees Joe in the cubicle. The soundproof cubicle stops her from warning them, and the master observes them through a portable video monitor. Thinking that the doctor has betrayed him, he prepares to release the gas. Episode 6 The opening of the tunnel door distracts the master, and the doctor kicks the gas activator from his hand before kicking him to the ground. They are suddenly surrounded by a group of primitives, and a grey creature orders them all inside. They are brought to the same room where Joe was held earlier, and once they are alone, the Doctor shows him the pictographs. On the Master's TARDIS, Caldwell manages to get Joe out of the cubicle, and Morgan questions her about the location of the Master, 
revealing that they know he is not the adjudicator. Joe says that he and the doctor have gone to the primitive city. She is then taken back to the colony where Dent orders her to be put on the ship with the other colonists. Joe appeals to Caldwell for aid in stopping the master and he reluctantly agrees, sneaking her out of the colony in a jeep. After they go, Morgan oversees the last of the colonists going on board and he notices that David isn't amongst them. Mary says that he is already on board, making sure the engines are okay. Ash arrives and tries to get Dent to change his mind, but to no avail. He then highlights that he is the only one qualified to pilot the ship, but Dent says that if he doesn't take off, then the colonists can starve to death in the ship, and that any of them trying to get out will be shot. In the primitive city, the master finishes looking at the pictographs, and explains that the civilization that once existed in the city genetically engineered a new super race, and the grey creatures are the descendants of it. He informs the Doctor about the files he stole from the Time Lords, and the Doctor asks why he is so interested in the planet. The Master reveals that the planet is home to a doomsday weapon that has never been used and is now worshipped as a god, with the grey creatures acting as the priests of this new religion. He says he intends to use it to hold the galaxy to ransom. The Doctor says that they are to be sacrificed to the weapon, but the Master pulls out a gas mask and a gas grenade and then suggests the Doctor hold his breath. A group of primitives are being led in by one of the great creatures, and the master throws the grenade at them, causing them all to choke on the gas, which allows him and the doctor to escape. Back at the colony, the rest of the IOC crew go back to their own ship, and after they leave, David comes out of hiding and attacks the guard that was assigned to remain behind to make sure that no one left the ship before takeoff. After a brief struggle, David manages to knock him out. As he is doing this, Dent videos through to the colonist's ship and asks what the delay is. Ash says that there is a fault in the life support system that should be fixed shortly. The ship takes off a few moments later and the departure is seen by Joe and Caldwell, who have just come across the Master's destroyed jeep. Their joy is soon turned to anguish though as they watch the ship explode and Caldwell breaks down into tears, holding himself responsible. They collect themselves and go on to the primitive city but find the entrance sealed. As Caldwell searches for a way in, the entrance opens and a primitive emerges and goes to attack Joe but it is not unconscious by Caldwell. The duo then enter the city. Inside the city, the Doctor and the Master locate the control room for the Doomsday weapon, and the Master says that it is capable of unparalleled destruction, informing the Doctor that its test firing created the Crab Nebula. The Master tries to convince his fellow renegade to join him, saying that they could rule as benevolent overlords, but the Doctor refuses, saying he's desires to explore the universe and not subjugate it. The Master prepares to shoot him, but is stopped by the appearance of the city ruler, who demands to know what they are doing. The Master tries to convince the ruler to use the weapon to establish a stellar empire, but the Doctor objects, saying that the weapon will only bring destruction and misery. The ruler agrees with the Doctor and makes the Master's laser pistol disappear when he tries to shoot him. The ruler then instructs the Doctor on how to activate the weapon's self-destruct function. The room begins to shake violently and the ruler tells him to flee, lest they be destroyed along with the city. The Doctor thanks him for his kindness and then flees along with the Master. The Doctor tries to stop the primitives and grey creatures as they make their way towards the control room, but the Master says that it is pointless. Moments later, they encounter Joe and Caldwell, and together they flee the city, just before it explodes, causing the hills to collapse in on themselves. The Master tries to take Caldwell's gun, but is stopped by the arrival of Morgan and a squad of IMC men that were dispatched by Dent to find and retrieve Caldwell. The Master tries to join them, but Morgan reveals that they know he is not the real adjudicator. Caldwell tries to intervene when Morgan and his men prepare to execute the trio, but Morgan threatens him as well. Suddenly, David appears on the top of a ridge with several armed colonists and the two engage in a firefight. The Master uses the distraction as a chance to escape, and a few moments later, the fighting ends as the colonists use the advantage of the high ground to inflict several casualties on the IMC crew, 
forcing them to surrender. Joe notices the disappearance of the master, and she and the doctor take one of the IMC jeeps to go after him. Unfortunately, they arrive too late and watch as his TARDIS dematerializes. Later at the colony, the doctor informs David that the crops should grow now, as it was the radiation from the weapon poisoning the soil. Joe asks how David wasn't on the ship, and he reveals that he and Ash knew that the IMC crew would need to be clear of the launch site in case the ship exploded. Therefore, he hid until everyone else was cleared and knocked out the sentry so that he could get the others off the ship. He sadly reveals that Ash sacrificed himself to keep up the deception. He then reveals that they managed to find the Doctor's TARDIS, and the Doctor thanks him and the others for their help before he and Joe leave. Caldwell informs David that a real adjudicator has been dispatched from Earth, and he then asks permission to join the colonists, to which David gladly agrees. The TARDIS lands back at Unit HQ a few seconds after it initially left. The Brigadier says that the Doctor will never get the TARDIS working if all it can do is only leave for a few seconds, and then starts to inform him about the false report on the Master. The Doctor tells Joe not to try and explain their adventure to him, as he wouldn't understand it, and the two share a conspiratorial smile. End of the story. So, with another sly dig against the Brigadier, we will not, <laughs> like we, I think we need to keep a tally mark, you know? Um, we're now over to the trivia spot. Cool. So the air date for Colony in Space was the 10th of April to the 15th of May, 1971. The writer for the story is Malcolm Hulk. This is the fifth script that Malcolm has contributed to. We previously saw his work in The Faceless Ones, which he did with David Ellis, The War Games, which he did with Terence Dix, Doctor Who and the Silurians, that was a solo project. He also contributed, though uncredited, rewrites for The Ambassadors of Death. And now we have Collie in Space, which is a solo project. Mm-hmm. Malcolm will have three more stories for us to review over time. Those are going to be The Sea Devils, Frontier in Space, and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Malcolm also wrote the target novel for this story, which is called Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon. Which is one of the very first Doctor Who books I ever read. Mm-hmm. And I read it before I actually watched this. Oh, wow. So there's a couple of like small differences. Like mm-hmm. the primitives, they're, they're not green-skinned. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have six fingers, which is a big thing. Um, the stunted leader mm. is is more like a kind of a hairless baby. But yeah. yeah, but the biggest one, the biggest change of all is that, in as per the target novelizations, this is the introduction of Joe. This is her origin, oh. this, despite the fact that several other third Doctor adventures starring Joe had been novelized before this. Wow, that was weird. Yep. I suppose they were kind of doing this would be the first one in the TARDIS, so maybe if you were skipping the Earth-based ones. Yeah, because like I read uh, Day of the Daleks first mm. before this. They, uh, this I think this was on a rebrand, but this came out. This came before it, mm. and I was like, okay, cool. Why are we going back to Joe not really knowing the Doctor? <laughs> mm. It's a, it's a strange one. No, interesting. So the story had the working title of The Colony, or just Colony. The director of the story is Michael E. Bryant, or just Michael Bryant. This is the first of six directing credits for Michael. We'll see his work again in The Sea Devils, The Green Death, Death of the Daleks, Revenge of the Cybermen, and The Robots of Death. Lots of death. And, like, robots. And, like, I don't, so technically, like, you know, you've got the Cybermen, which are, you know, they're not really robots. 
but like, it just seems to cybernetic. Be, yeah, cybernetic and then Daleks, which is like an outer casing, which is essentially a tank, but slightly robotic. So he just likes to smash the two things together. Robots of death. <laughs> um, Michael also worked as an assistant floor manager and a production assistant on previous stories, so he's been around a lot. Mm. Michael Bryant, he actually voiced the commentary that was accompanying the propaganda film that the Doctor watches in the spaceship. Mm. It was originally intended for Pat Gorman, but there was a last minute change. So Gorman was still credited, but it was actually Michael Bryant who did the voice. All right. He had intended that the role of Morgan, so like the the heavy, uh, as, I, as, I, as I come to describe him later, that was originally meant to be played by a woman named Susan Jameson. Mm. However, and she was hired. Like she was meant to be playing the role. However... He was overruled by the head of serials, Ronnie Marsh, who thought that a woman in the role wouldn't be appropriate for a family audience, as it might impart unintended sexuality to the scenes. I'm because she'd already <laughs> signed the contract, though, Susan Jameson still got paid. Ah. And Brian thought the decision was unenlightened and sexist, and I would completely yeah, agree. Yeah, definitely. Jesus Christ, like... Kudos to Michael for trying, like, for casting against type for that role i love how like you know and katie manning kind of made this point in the behind the sofa section on the blu-ray that a lot of the stories that we see they just hire someone for the role they're not particularly concerned with whether the person they're hiring is male or female apparently Mm. Uh, katie was quite proud of that i think this is one example of that that just didn't get fulfilled which is a bit annoying like, because I've just found a picture of her there, okay? Mm. Now, unless they kind of went kind of a bit like Star Trek and, you know, gave her a really figure-hugging outfit, just like, she's like, not to sound disparaging or that, but like, she's not like, you know, the James Bond femme fatale, you know, sex-kitten villain type thing, you know? No, but yeah. at the same time, like... Not hiring her or not keeping her on after hiring her. Yeah, it's it, 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 it's it's fucking bullshit. Like, mm. so we've discussed before about how the credits, like even though you'd imagine they just copy and paste the credits, how there's often differences between stories. So in episode four, the master is credited as just master. Mm. And then episodes five and six, he's credited as the master. Like, how do you keep getting these mixed up? I just I can imagine your mom just kind of going, you know, well, you know, like, what is he the master of? He could just be a master for all we know. Yeah. Um, Malcolm Hulk had originally envisaged the IMC robot, which I'm just going to say it looks like the War Machine robot, just with different mm-hmm. appendages. Yeah, it does. Um, he originally envisaged that to be a bit more humanoid, which would have been interesting. Yeah. The doctor told Joe that the brigadier nearly arrested the Spanish ambassador, mistaking him for the master. Yeah. Right. This is apparently an in-joke that was referring to Roger Delgado because he played Mendoza, the Spanish envoy to the court of Elizabeth I, in Sir Francis Drake. Mendoza! (laughs) So that was their sort of, like, nod to him in in that particular scene. That's cool. So on to our cast. So we have a couple of people to go through today. So as Robert Ash, we have John Ringham. This is the third and final appearance 
by John in Doctor Who. We previously saw him as Clitoxel in the Aztecs and as Josiah Blake in the Smugglers. When I saw like I was like, wait, I know that name. Because I saw the credits, I was like, I know that name. Yeah. And like I was like, he looks so I think it's because of the black and white, but he yeah. looks so much older as Clitoxel. And like obviously there's the makeup as well, like in the, mm. the face paint. But I was just like, Jesus. <laughs> I think the beard makes a big difference as well. Really does. Really does. Mm. David Winton, mm-hmm. who's sometimes referred to as David and for entire episodes is referred to as Winton. And for yeah. a while I was like, are they talking about the same person? Um, he's played by Nicholas Pennell. This is his only Doctor Who acting appearance. His non-Who credits include The Battle of Britain, A Tale of Two Cities, The Woman in White, The Flaxton Boys, The Doctors and The Foresight Saga. Nicholas passed away in 1995. Caldwell is played by Bernard Kay, or Key. I can't remember if we decided on that before. I think we, said, K. K. I think we said K. Yeah. This is the fourth and final appearance for Bernard. We previously saw him in the Darlick. Inv- the Darlick. The Darlick. Who are? Paul commented before that we say Darlick, and I said we don't. And yeah. Went now you're just proving him right. Yeah, I'm going to leave this in. Hi, Paul. Um, <laughs> so we previously saw Bernard in the Dalek Invasion of Earth, where he was Carl Tyler. He was also in The Crusade as Saladin, and he was in The Faceless Ones as Inspector Crossland slash the director. I think as of this, he is possibly my favourite guest starring actor in Doctor Who. Really? I, well, like I've enjoyed, well, spoiler alert, I've enjoyed each of his performances. Even in the, even the Faceless One, which, as we know, like wasn't a particularly favourite story of mine, but I did enjoy his performance. Mm. And like Dalek Invasion of Earth and Crusade are just fantastic stories. So like I just really enjoy him. Captain Dent is played by Morris Perry. This is the only Doctor Who appearance for Morris. His non-Who appearances include The Debt, The Count of Monte Cristo, The Hound of the Baskervilles, Drummonds, Secret Army, Crown Court, and The Sweeney. Morris passed away not three weeks ago at the time of recording this in September of 2021. Oh. At the age of 94. Morgan went to on to be played by Tony Conter. This is the second of three appearances for Tony. We previously saw him in The Crusade and we'll see him again in Enlightenment. He is most famous for playing Roy Evans on EastEnders, which he played from 1994 to 2003. He also appeared in The Chief, West Beach, Running Scared, Juliet Bravo, The Legend of Robin Hood and Crown Court. Norton is played by Roy Skelton. This is the seventh Doctor Who story that Roy has contributed to. He previously, I, I'm going to say contributed to because he does a lot of voice work. Yeah. Um, but, so we previously heard him in The Ark, The Tenth Planet, The Evil of the Daleks, The Ice Warriors, The Wheel in Space, and The Crotons. We will see and or hear him again in Planet of the Daleks, The Green Death, Genesis of the Daleks, The Android Invasion, The Hand of Fear, Destiny of the Daleks, The Five Doctors, Revelation of the Daleks, Remembrance of the Daleks, and The Curse of the Fatal Death. A lot of those, spoiler warning, Mm-hmm. Or Daleks. Yep. I often like when the voice actors get a chance to actually appear on screen as well. Mm, me too. Yeah. Now, Paddy, you may also recognize his voice because he was in the Sarah Jane Smith Big Finish audio adventure, Test of Nerve. He was James Carver in that story. Carver, 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 Carver. The guy who goes mental. Oh, the, oh yeah, the fucking guy that was being experimented on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I really need to listen to that again now. Just in case you were wondering, Test of Nerve is probably our favourite yep. Sarah Jane Smith audio story from Big Finish. Yeah. It is very good. Highly recommend. 
it is fucking fantastic. <laughs> Outside of Doctor Who, Skelton is also known as the voices of the puppet characters Zippy and George on Rainbow, which is sweet. Uh, Roy passed away in 2011. Now, we do have a final character that we just wanted to mention because a lot of people would recognize her. We're not going to be discussing her in our characters because, to be honest, she doesn't really do much. She's just kind of there. Yeah. And that is Mary Ash, who's played by Helen Worth. This is Helen's only Doctor Who appearance. However, she is best known for playing Gail Platt in over 3,700 episodes of Coronation Street. Yeah, I actually, like, because, like, my wife doesn't really watch Doctor Who. I say doesn't really as in just doesn't <laughs> but i showed her as i like yo do you recognize this person she goes yeah that's gail from coronation street <laughs> so she was also in zed cars and she also had i just included these two because they were the two things that left out of me hmm. um she had uncredited roles in oliver and also in the pride of the prime this is pride it's the prime of miss jean brody which again dan and paul hi you may recall is one of my top three um maggie smith movies of all time which I still have on, I still have your DVD of, and I still watch. <laughs> have you not watched it yet? Not yet. It's fabulous. We fucking watch it. I will. Okay. Because it's fabulous. It is. Fa- it's brilliant. Like, it, oh, it's it's so good. It's so good. Recommendation to everyone. Watch The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Because you can kind of sort of imagine it as like proto-McGonagall hmm. in some ways. But not really. Don't go too far down that route, or it may ruin Harry Potter for you. But she plays teacher. There we go. Cool. I I feel like every time like we see someone that's going to have like a, a small role in Prime of Miss Jean Brody, that'll be like Euro for Eagles. There. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to double check it is Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah I don't prime. know why freaking stupid thing had pride. Yeah, well, like, to be fair, like sometimes like my thing spell checks into like the most weird things. It's like nope. I wa- I was trying to say peacock. Not pottery. Yeah. I d- just for context, just because we started discussing it, let's go say it. Um, we had to read this book in school when we were in transition year mm. for English. So I read the book, and then I found out that Maggie Smith is in the film. So I bought the film. Thought the film was brilliant. And the following year, I was like, "Oh, can we do the Prime Machine Brody as our novel for our leaving cert?" And they said no, and we had to do some stupid book about a girl who gets a like music star's name tattooed on her forehead or something. I, oh. th- I that that was my with my struggle with the um, the film component. Uh, the options were like was it like Strictly Ballroom, A Room with a View, El Postino, and mm. Dances with Wolves. And I heard Dances with Wolves, and my head just kind of shot up. And I looked around the room, and I was like, "Ye uncivilized." Bastards, the lot of you. Well, yeah, yeah like, no, we, like, I wanted to do it as the book. Our movie was A Room with a View. We didn't get a vote. We were just told we were doing A Room with a View. And I'm convinced the only reason why we did A Room with a View is because the teachers found it funny when gir- when a class of 30 girls got embarrassed during the swimming naked in the pond scene. We did that when I repeated my leaving cert. And we watched that scene, and just from down the back of the room, some lad went, ah, for fuck's sake. <laughs> We've gone massively off topic. We, we have. We're back to topic. Prime yeah. Miss Jean Brody. <laughs> Watch it, slash read it. Both are good. Cool. 
so we have gone through our story summary. Thank you again, Paddington. We have gone through trivia and thank as you very usual, much, Trish. <laughs> You're welcome. And as per usual, gotten sidetracked by Trisha's inane ramblings. And now it is time for our character discussions. Mm-hmm. So this time around, we have the Doctor, as per usual. We have the companions. So we have Joe Grant as our only ongoing companion because the brick doesn't really count this time around. Then we have story-based companions of Robert Ash and David Winton. Mm-hmm. We have our prominent characters of Caldwell as well as the Primitives. Yes. And then we have our villains who are going to be the Master, Captain Dent and Morgan. Oh, we also have Norton in there as well. Mm-hmm. So quite a few people to get through. So Paddy, I'm going to hand it over to you first. What are your thoughts on the Doctor this time around? So you finally got off the speck of dust, eh? <laughs> um, so I enjoyed the Doctor this this one. Uh, sorry, this one, this story. Um, like we got to see the scientist, we got mm-hmm. to see diplomat, we got to see the explorer, and John's forte. We got to see the fighter mm-hmm. with the height. Uh, <laughs> why do you always say hello when you attack someone? Uh, <laughs> Uh, and it was great, like, because I really enjoyed his interactions with with the colonists. Like, you know, his mm. back and forth with Ash was great. I really enjoyed his moments with the the city ruler because mm. there there's just something there's something very genuine about the way he like, he continually thanks the the ruler for like you know his kindness and his uh, justice and this type of thing. And it's not patronizing; it just seems mm. very genuine. Was it? I did like his time around with Joe. Um, there was like one or two times where I was a bit iffy about it. Um, kind of more or less at the start, where it was Joe is clearly frightened about the fact that she has uh, gone into an alien world, and the doctor he does for a slight moment sort of come across as like, "Oh, it's me, me, me!" Like I've been cooped up for so long, I mm. want to stretch my legs, type thing. But after a while, you kind of realize that, like, as an audience member, you've missed it as well. You've missed the yeah. doctor going off world and exploring all these, like, different things and getting into all sorts of hijinks. And, and what I did like, though, was that he didn't try and pull a first doctor and do some stupid bullshit to try and keep them on the planet. Like, like, back. I, I did wonder if the, oh, look at this rock. Yeah was kind of going toward that but well, it's not as obvious as the first yeah. doctor was and it's not it's not it's not presented in the yeah. way it was with the first doctor yeah because like we, we'll never know because of you know you're my hero you'll never know uh we'll never know because they were taken captive but i wasn't getting that sense yeah no that that could just be my reading of it um the other thing that I was um, kind of like a bit eh, and again, this is just, again, me reading too much into stuff, was when he kicked the the button, the booby trap button out of the, doctor, out of the master's hand, mm. I was like, granted, yes, they were kidnapped, or like not kidnapped, but they were taken captive, but I would have liked to have seen him like kind of at least look at the, you know, the ground or look for the portable monitor from the master to make sure that it didn't go off and that Joe was okay. Yeah, I kind of got the impression just from the way the master pushes that button that it's a very you have it, it won't it won't just go off if you drop it on the floor. 
Okay. Because like the way they film it is the master's finger specifically going down into it. They make a big deal of it. And that's the suspenseful cliffhanger ending of episode five. It's like just a uh, push down the finger. Do, 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 yeah. Do, do, do. yeah, but I get the feeling that like dropping it on the floor yeah. won't set it off. But I, I, I understand where you're coming from. I think my last point is what I really appre- what I really enjoy about seeing his interactions with the colonists is that to me anyway it comes across as a reflection of his relationship with his own people mm. because the colonists are tired of what earth has become and they want to live their own lives on another planet whereas with the doctor he's like it's been he hates their regimented society he wanted to break free he wanted to go explore so like there is that certain level of kinship with them mm. um but yeah no so i i enjoyed the doctor this time around I do too. Um, you know, I've been a bit critical of John's Doctor since the beginning, really, to be honest. Um, I, but I did quite like him in the story. Um, I agree with you that he does dismiss Joe's concerns about wanting to go back to Earth at the beginning. And it does come across a bit selfish. However, I think given the situation, that this is his first experience of freedom hmm. in, like, from a story-based perspective, nearly two seasons. Yeah. Which if we just go with the arbitrary rule of a season is a year he's been Mm -hmm. stuck on earth in one place for two years which Mm -hmm. he never does yeah so it's kind of understandable and also you kind of get the impression that like he's not going out looking for danger if it was dangerous he would have backed up they landed in a quarry and he was like okay cool there's there's nothing here let's go have a nose about like oh we're in cardiff (laughs) Um, throughout the story though we do see how their friendship has grown you know there is easy hugs kisses on the head being very comfortable Mm. in each other's personal space like he just puts his arm around her shoulder and he does genuinely care for her safety so when she's first kidnapped by um, the mining crew when she's kept kept, like the fact that the master doesn't even need to threaten her he's like you're going to kill her if I don't do it aren't you okay he very clearly cares about her Mm. and which I think is a massive step up from what we saw with Liz in The Ambassadors of Death, which I will always go back to because I think that's a prime example of where I I wouldn't necessarily I'd say the Doctor failed. It's where the writers failed to show the compassion the Doctor has for his companions. Yeah. And so I think it's always a good benchmark against is it better than The Ambassadors of Death? And if so, by how much? Yeah, no, that's a, that, <laughs> that's a good measuring stick. Yeah. Um, the one thing I will say is I do think he is a little bit demeaning, which is in line with John Pertwee's doctor. Mm-hmm. He is very much like, I'm not going to explain to you because it'd be a waste of my time. Yeah. More so than the others were, which is that particularly with Ash, when Joe was like, why don't we tell Ash who the master is? And the doctor says he wouldn't understand. Hmm what's not to understand you know this person joe called him something when she walked into the room people surely to christ heard her um what's hard to explain yeah exactly if he had said that like the the car like all the master holds all the cards or something Mm -hmm. to indicate that the master has power over the situation yeah it's yeah that's better because it's less he does try to say to him later on anyway so it's like what was the point of that um and also this is the 25th century like they're out in space they understand more than joe would for example 
But then he does it later with the brigadier as well. He's like, oh, don't bother trying to explain it to him. He wouldn't understand. I was like, it's not that difficult a concept to understand, love. You travel in time, you disappeared for a while, and then you came back. It's just a bit of a dick, like, you know. Yeah, it's the one, but it's in line with John's doctor, though, because he is very much someone who doesn't like explaining himself. Yeah. And that is in line with that. And it also sort of carries over, like, what we saw last week with him just fucking off and not intending to come back. Mm. And what we would have seen at the end of Inferno, what we would have seen in uh, Spearhead when he was just planning on just leaving, is very much in line with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, it is a little bit fucking condescending. Like. Yeah. yeah, he's just being a dick. like. You know. <laughs> uh, cool. So shall we move on to Miss Grant? We shall. We shall. Um, for me, like, Joe Grant showing why she is a unit operative and not the tea lady. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's the damsel in distress in a fair bit of this story. She gets captured by the miners. She gets captured by the primitives. And then they are both captured and she is held captive mm-hmm. by the master. But she takes every opportunity given to her to, one, investigate what's going on. Like, it's her idea to infiltrate the ship, not David's. Yeah. Two, rescue the doctor. Again, that's what she was trying to do. Like, as soon as she got out of the little tube thing, mm. we have to go find the doctor. That was always what she wanted to do. And three, to free herself from the situation that she's in. Her little escapology stuff. Yeah. Uh, coming to the fore there, which I'm guessing... Given what they did in that scene where they greased her wrist, I'm guessing she has a way of, like, in her escapology classes of, like, dislocating her thumbs to, like, get her hands to fit her. Do you what kind of is really weird about that scene mm. is that Joe is very known for, like, having lots of rings on her finger. Yeah. She doesn't take the rings off. Well, yeah, but once her wrist gets through, like, once the part of her hand where, like, once the fat part of her hand gets through, her fingers are less of a problem. True. It's her wrist is the issue. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I just like I, I just thought it was a bit strange. I just yeah. think it's well, snags. Well, once once your thumb is through, mm. that's the important part. Yeah. Once you're past that part, then then you're gonna go to go. Oh Christ! I'm just remembering a movie now. Oh no! Stop! Stop! Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, again, I'm just going to comment a little bit on in the behind the sofa features, which I do love. If you mm-hmm. ever have a chance to watch the Blu-ray sets, and Patty, you can borrow my ones. The behind the sofa ones are very funny. Um, but Janet Fielding, who does a lot of them. Uh, she did comment when Joe first meets the middle primitive, the the big brain that's like normal sized. Um, she just screams in his face. <laughs> I was like, "Dude, that's a little bit rude." <laughs> like, okay, I get it. He looks freaky as fuck, but like, don't just scream in someone's face. I think maybe a shocked expression may have been a better course yeah. of action than just yelling into his face. All I can think of is uh, Robot Chicken Star Wars, or where you know uh, the Emperor has just you know gotten electrocuted, and Anakin's like, "Oh Jesus, I've got a scrotum for a face." Um, the one thing that I did like as well, I thought it was really interesting to go down this route, and again, Katie Manning called it out in the Blu-ray, is Joe's initial reaction. Mm-hmm. So A, she thought that the doctor was joking all those times he said the TARDIS can travel in time and space, right? Which I just think is cute, right? But 
when the TARDIS starts to take off, she's not like, yay, adventure. Mm. She's very anxious and all she wants to do is go back. Yeah. And I think that's a very, in- I think it makes Joe a lot more real. And I think it's a very interesting way to have the character because a lot of times, particularly like in New Who, all the characters are very gung-ho to go traveling. That's not what she wanted. She didn't sign up for that. Um, And I like that they played into that. I think it makes her a bit unique in that respect. Yeah. And like, so she seems like overall, she seemed to take the adventure well in hand. She Mm. seemed to take the entire story. And I was thinking like, I'm not really sure how I feel about that. Like how quickly she gets accustomed to the fact that they're on an alien world and there's an alien species there and all this stuff is going on. And like, I was thinking back to the other time contemporary companions have gone off world. Mm. And now with Ian and Barbara, it's their first two stories. And like you're setting the tone of the show. Yeah. Like, you know, like Joe, like Joe or the writing for Joe has the benefit of what do we know? Eight years. Mm based on like that initial two-story arc, or sorry, three-story arc, but the first two components of it, where we're getting to know all about the world of the Doctor and the TARDIS and all this type of stuff. So it's not really fair to compare her to Ian and Barbara. Mm. Nor is it to Ben and Polly, because their first off-world adventure deals with them having to deal with a brand new Doctor. Mm. So... Dodo would be the closest, I think. Dodo would be the closest, and... Her introduction was weird. Yeah, it's it, it's very bizarre. And but she is very gung-ho to go, though. She is. And the thing about that is, Joe's by herself with this one. Because you had Stephen, who was mm. there the whole time. Pre-established. Uh, yeah. yeah, pre-established. And also a prick to her, yeah. uh, to put it, fine, put it, <laughs> put it politely. Um, so Joe's by herself. And there were moments there, as you said, like, leading like how about we go on the ship to find proof or escapeology and also holding off the guard to let david have an escape mm. but joe is rarely by herself for an extended mm. period of time yeah. which is no because of the way that i've watched who you know like i started off in toms and i went back and all that kind of stuff i always like it when the car- the companion is by themselves and helps advance the story mm. joe doesn't really have a whole lot of that here She's really, no, but she's I think really she takes every opportunity. I think she helps drive other people in a good yeah. way. Yeah, oh, no, no, that's it. Like she, like she helps drive the plot in a co- but in companionship with someone else, mm. be it David or Caldwell or whoever. Like the 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 nearest component that she had, and I, it's actually something I really enjoyed, was when the doctor is brought into the city and meets mm. her. She brings his attentions to the pictograph, so she's yeah. not in the cell you know, cowering in fear or anything like that. She's observing her surroundings and mm. seeing what's there and she notices the pictographs. And I really like that component. I think that's one of the interesting things though. Like to your point, like this is her first time. She's on the alien planet. She starts off super freaked and then she kind of mellows into it. I think part of the reason why the character was able to mellow so smoothly into it is the first people who captured them were human. It's not until she gets taken by the primitives that she has any interaction with them on her own i think if they've been captured by the primitives at the beginning her reaction would have been very different and plus as well i'm going to assume that mary is close enough in age to her yeah that 
it's a shared companionship type thing there, like mm. in the sense of you know, this is Mary's first, presumably Mary's first trip off world as well. But um, so it was like there wasn't a whole lot of super development, but at mm. the same time, there's a real nice grounding to the character as well. Yeah. So then we have Ash and David. Hmm. I'll do Ash first since he is officially starts off as the leader. I don't think he's the most effective leader we've seen. Um, it's not that he's dumb hmm. as such. Like he's not an idiot. But he has zero initiative and he makes a lot of bad decisions. Like, dude, stop giving away your food. Yeah. That, that one's a strange one. Because we've seen no reciprocal, like, well, we've no evidence of reciprocation from the primitives. No, bar that one primitive who gets along quite well with that engineer. Oh yeah, but like, but Which that, I thought was lovely. I I enjoyed that. Like, yeah. there's a there's a very there's a parallel here in mm. this story that for me this story it's actually a space western. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, pioneers moving west, interacting with the Native Americans, the federal government, so on and so forth. Like, there's like that nice little thing mm. so i will come back to that point later on i was gonna say that okay cool perfect um so yeah there's no reciprocation of like materials given to the colony or clothing well then again they're the as we learned they're the primitive descendants of a higher society that has now devolved into religious fanaticism mm. so we have no idea what their stories in relation to outsiders yeah but his whole thing of giving them food is he knows it makes them go away. It's like, and the fact that he's bought people back with food before, I'm like, that. This seems like a bad, like this does not seem like a stable, scalable approach to this problem. Like, in okay, I, the concept of trying to establish a connection with the primitive natives. Mm. I, I, you know, it's, it's a commendable thing because you know you see it in a lot in coloniz in certain uh, colonizations, mm. um, and he just basically tried to foster a relationship so that the, the presumably the the colony could survive by one means or another, and that I, I'm not going to object to that, but continually giving and not getting anything in return, there is a time to draw the line. Yeah. I would have actually loved to have seen... I know we've kind of gone off topic and we might get to it when we talk about but I would have loved to have seen more of the primitive with the engineer. Yeah. Because they seem to have a really yeah. good relationship. That primitive wasn't there under duress. No. You wouldn't say he was a slave or anything. And he also appeared to be wearing at least articles of col colonist clothing. I think he was <laughs> wearing a vest. <laughs> they seemed like friends. Which yeah. is cool. And the other thing is, I, I don't know how you feel about this. His self-sacrifice at the end. It was good. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it was earned. How do you mean earned, just out of curiosity? I didn't particularly care. Okay. Because he hadn't really been an effective leader up until this point, his, his self-sacrifice for the colony wasn't like, you know, the, the apex of what he's done for his people, mm. nor was it a redemption, really, because like I said, he wasn't dumb or evil. Mm. He was just ineffective. So him sending the rocket up and sadly dying on it, I, I just didn't get any emotional impact out of it. Okay. Like. 
I think part of that is Mary just continues on as normal. Yeah, and that was for dad. Yeah, there's no real emotion um, from Mary's side of things. Um, I did find it, like, I did find it a bit emotional because for me, the whole true line of it was that, like, David and Ash are, for varying reasons, they are the heart of the colony. Like, be, like obviously, the Ash was the appointed leader, and David is his second in command. But they, they're just like they're the heart and spirit of the colony, or the heart and soul of the colony. Mm-hmm. And I always get this impression from Ash that, like, because he just seems to be like this serial optimist, but he needs a small bit more. Re- he needs a small bit more of a realist, a realist attitude at times. Mm-hmm. But all he ever seems to care about is just the colony succeeding and striving. I know he is kind of stubborn in the sense of like Jesus, like how many failed harvests that we had. Maybe it is time to move on. Mm. Um, and that whole thing of like the ship being incapable of take, taking off again—that just seemed to come out at the very last moment. But for me, I think the sacrifice at the end is a testament to how much he like wanted the colony to succeed in the sense of he would sacrifice himself for his fellow colonists. Yeah, I, I don't know. I- it just didn't work for me, but yeah, we can agree to disagree on that one. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's been a was it? Yeah, faceless ones is probably the last time we've disagreed in terms of characters and motivations and stuff like that. So I, I, I think it's time. You know, we're due for another mm. shift. Because uh, the other side, then we have David. So David mm-hmm. Winton, yeah, who I think could be an effective leader mm. for an operation like this, like the sort of like Wild West frontier town type yeah establishment except he's a little too willing to break the law and the reason why i call that out as a negative for him is initiative is great given points for initiative mm-hmm. willing to do whatever it takes to protect the colony to protect what they're building which is fantastic unfortunately it's setting a bad precedent within the colony itself mm-hmm. if they don't obey any laws set by earth standard yeah then they run the risk of becoming lawless within themselves. And like the thing is, like, you know, the whole, like, you know, we need to distribute all the weapons in case Earth sends troops. And it's like, but like, man, you're you're not thinking of things logically here. Yeah, you can take out the IMC crew with their own weapons, that's fine. But if Earth sends a fleet, they're going to have logistics, supplies, they're going to have a lot more munitions. So when you run out of bullets, they're still going to have plenty. In his defense, though, I will say one thing. Mm-hmm. It was very optimistic to assume the guys would leave and oh, not just yeah. go up and come back down. Yeah. He was right. They should have distributed the weapons at least for the next couple of days. Yeah. Until they were sure that ship yeah. had gone. Because, like, as far as we know, like, like and I, yeah, I don't think it's a. They have no far range scanners, hmm. they have radio, but Jesus yeah. Christ, like, they can go radio silent, and it's a big fucking planet. So. Yeah. Yeah, like, I I agree that the the new weapon should have been distributed because yeah, at least for a few days, yeah, you know, and then have and, a rotation and whatever. And as well, we have a scenario where IMC are responsible for the deaths of a couple of primitives. Mm. What's to say that the primitives won't just attack whatever fucking you know, um, human they come across? So, like, don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed David as a character. Mm. I re- like. Like, because they could have very easily put him as a usurper 
constantly mm-hmm. trying to oust Ash, much like the young Silurian and the leader from mm-hmm. Doctor Who and the Silurians. But they didn't. Yes, he has voiced like maybe Ash wasn't the best person to put in charge at the time. But he never tries to lead an arm in direction. He try, constantly tries mm-hmm. to keep Ash in the loop in terms of this is the decision we're going with. And like I feel that if they had managed to, you know, assert themselves in a, as an independent republic, he would want Ash in a position of leadership. Yeah, I think what David was looking for and where David would fit in really well is a security chief. Yeah. You know, to be the sheriff or the security guy. Yeah. The reason why I think the Ash self-sacrifice doesn't work is I think it would have worked better for David. Because you could read it that David is all gung-ho, looking for action, Mm. and a bit up his own arse. Whereas I think it would have been an interesting sort of thing that David was also willing to make the sacrifice. He wasn't just the guns blazing guy. He was also willing to, you know, to quote the worst Avenger in my opinion. He was also willing to lay on the wire and let the other guys climb over him. (laughs) Do you know? Um, I think th- I think I would have felt it more if it had been David mm. than I felt with Ash. But that may just be because I gravitated more towards David and his logic than I did towards Ash and his logic. Um, I never got like never once throughout this entire story did I get the read of him as being like some sort of arrogant up his own ass guy, and like that was the thing. As I said, that was the thing about David and Ash is that they're both like they both believe in the colony so much, mm. and. Like I, I I loved every kind of scene that David was on. I think it was a fantastic performance by Nicholas Pennell. Mm, uh, I agree. So, yeah, no, like I just, yeah, no, I I I think we kind of agree for the most part on mm. David's side of things. Yeah. Cool. So now we have the prominent characters. Yeah, so we've got Caldwell and the primitives. And the primitives. So we do Caldwell first. Yeah, I'm torn on Caldwell. So am I. I like him, mm-hmm. and I don't like him. I don't love him, and I don't hate him. It's varying degrees of like, because the level of violence and death that he is willing to turn a blind eye to in the name of money is a bit much. Like, he eventually helps Joe. And then in the final firefight, sides with the colonists. But that's in like the final episode. But he also saves David. Yeah, but like, yeah, he keeps going back. Though, oh, oh yeah, thing, absolutely. You know? Oh no, don't get me wrong. Like I, like I agree that like he's not an out and out good guy here, because he has gone along. Like you know, okay, yeah, you could say Dent is blackmailing him, but he's death's back on earth. But Jesus Christ, man, you're on a fucking colony. <laughs> you know, and like, who you, gives the monkeys about your death back? Yeah, around? you could literally fucking sling your hook and join the colonists, which is what you which did. He does. But after, you know, uh, as you say, like turning a blind eye, or like, not a blind eye, but turning his back on the underhanded tactics of. But he death also gets involved, like in one of the firefights in the hangar, as I call it, mm-hmm. you know, like the yeah. the main hangar area. He's there. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And yeah, Morgan is like, hey, you still report to me or whatever, do you know, do whatever. But like, he puts up with so much. Like, the fact that it took him to episode six to turn. Completely. To turn completely. Hmm. And even then, he kind of resigns himself to it. He's kind of like, oh, for 
fuck's sake, get in. Yeah. Do you know? Like, that, that's... What did you think of his emotional breakdown? Or like the very brief emotional breakdown that he allows himself? You knew it was going to explode. Yeah. Don't pretend you didn't. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, he sided with the good guys several times throughout. Hmm. But he could have done more hmm. to stand up for the colonists. Like, he could have used his own initiative to say, I've reviewed their ship, their engine's a bit fucked. I've replaced this part. Because mm-hmm. I don't think Dent cared. No. Dent didn't care if they lived or, li- or died so long as they left. Yeah. And so long as Caldwell did something that was time effective, Dent wouldn't have given a shit. Mm-hmm. Do you know, mm-hmm. hey, I gave them this piece of tech or whatever to fix their whatchamacallit and then it would have been like will it make them leave faster yeah okay fuck it I don't care do you know but the thing is like his breakdown I'm kind of like what the fuck did you expect yeah because like like, there's like the line you know from like Return to King you know like you know it was just a fool's hope you know yeah Um, but it's just like and again like I, I, as I said, I enjoyed Bernard K's performance here because oh, yeah. like you're, you're kind of, as you said, you're torn between like, you know, should I like this guy? Should I fucking hate him? I don't know because he does some good things, but at the same time, he's turned, he's like, he's enabling a lot of bad shit as well. Mm. Um, I mean, like, for fuck's sake, he like, could Why didn't he speak up when the adjudicator was there? Yeah. Or why didn't he tell David Norton is working for IMC? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's like, he kind of reminded me a small bit of the Squire from the Smugglers, because I think the Squire was a character that we kind of started on this whole prominent character fucking mm. side of things in the sense of he's not out and out evil. He's out to make a fucking quick buck. Yeah. Um, and then at the end, like, you know, he has his little moment of redemption, which mm-hmm. is actually kind of funny because. John Ringham is also in that story. <laughs> um, yeah, Caldwell, very, very split down the middle. Thank God we have the prominent character section. <laughs> yeah. And then we have the primitives. Okay, there's three versions of the primitives, right? There's the green guys. There's the Rocky Dennis green guys, because their masks look like the Rocky Dennis mask. There's the cloaked brains. Yeah. And there's the big brain. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all creepy as fuck. Yeah, the the the, the kind of the grey ones, as I call them, like the sort of the cloaked ones. They remind me. I sent Trisha a picture of a character. I'm pretty sure she has no idea who the fuck it is. No, <laughs> uh, he's the character's name is Void. He's one of the uh, the God Hand members from the story Berserk that I love. Okay. Uh, he's like an arch demon essentially, but that's what he looks like. It's like exposed brain, weird fucking face, and a big fuck off Ming the Merciless mm. cape. Um, like there's an there's an awful lot of stuff that kind of reminded me of what's going on here in terms of like I got um reminded of the underground mutants from Beneath the Planet of the Apes. You know, I was thinking that as well. Yeah, that was that was the one big thing that was ringing true for me. Worshiping like their um doomsday weapon god. Yeah, Mm -hmm. uh, the green skin primitives. There's the complete, you know, metaphor, allegory, symbolism of Native Americans there. 
or any sort of native or, or any yeah, yeah. But I think because of the space western vibe I was just going with that whereas well yeah but you'd have the same thing in Australia yeah or in South Africa when the boars mm. uh, went down there that, that, that type of thing yeah so any sort of any sort of thing where uh, any colonisation yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of in the title yeah <laughs> we changed this to a country called ours um, do you have a flag yeah no i don't but i've got a spear with a dead guy on it fair enough <laughs> you keep it um and then there was the ruler now i get what they were going for i really do and the concept i enjoy immensely but the practicalities of it was it was a guy's head behind a curtain and a little baby doll body that he was moving the arms i had to pause no i rarely i rarely message paddy when i'm watching it i i think i've done it maybe a handful of times i had to pause take a picture of the screen and send it to paddy because my initial response was what the ever living fuck is that bow selected mask doing because that's what it just reminded me yeah of. it's the teddy it looks like the teddy bear from bow selector yeah that's exactly what it reminded me of and i was like what the shit is this um so in terms of the creep factor well done. And, the, and like the fact that, you know, that the, I call them like the, the grey priests because mm. that's essentially, I think they're, the, they are the priests of this. I think the master calls them priests at one point. I think so, yeah. But like they're blind because they're completely subterranean. And mm. because of that, I feel that when the primitives go up onto the surface, it's, so long as they're on the surface, they can do whatever they want. But once they go back into the city, they adhere to all the rules set down by the priests and the, the ruler. Hmm. Um, I enjoyed the character of the ruler because of the fact, you know, as like as the doctor does, you know, like you know, you're fair, you're just, you're understanding. Like he goes, yeah, look, the the so called progress of our society has wreaked havoc upon our civilization. That thing is the fucking devil. Blow it up. Um, I did enjoy that he didn't say it like that, but that's kind of like what it was hmm. coming across as. My thing with that, though. Why didn't they do it already? Why didn't they do it already? Well, see, this is the thing, though, is that he, the character is incapable of getting anywhere beyond that chair. Presumably, it's some sort of life support function. But he can communicate with the priests. But the, priest, the, but the priests are the head of a religion. So, like... I, I, my thing with the primitives in general, right? And I'm mm. going to get to this in the overall. Yeah. Take them out of the story and it changes nothing. As in like all three sections of primitive society? Take all three out. Okay. So then at the end it just becomes... Have an f- abandoned city. And then just have a fist fight between the Doctor and the Master to take control of the weapon. Yeah. Okay. All right. Or a message appears, like a, a screen turns on, you've got kind of like a Zola-esque fucking thing or whatever or a recorded yeah. message from the past saying if you've made it here you know what this is destroy it you could have taken out all of the primitive characters every single one of them hmm. and it changes nothing but then it's not a space western yeah i'm gonna get to that in a minute yeah. i'm gonna get to it in my overall but okay that, that, that was my read of them okay right? yeah um i have one final point mm. As I said, I ha- usually have no problem suspending disbelief when it comes to, to Doctor Who because mm. 
as we've always said, it's the stories that are the thing that invest us. We don't give a shite about the fucking props or the sets or anything like that because the acting and story kind of really make anything Mm -hmm. work. But this really fucking took the biscuit for me. Like, this was the one thing I can't kind of, oh, yeah, suspend your disbelief. Surely to God, for what you were trying to get across, there is a height-appropriate actor. That you can mm-hmm. that you can put the fucking makeup on. I'm pretty sure there was a, there. I don't, but I'm pretty sure that there's someone of an appropriate height. Be it any actor with a condition that would affect their uh, growth, mm-hmm. such as dwarfism or even, yeah, because the acromalgy is the the, the gigantism versions mm-hmm. we discussed for Mind of Evil. Even have a child. Yeah, even have a child. Oh yeah, that's actually another thing. Do what they did for the fucking Carbonite maneuver in Star Trek. Have a uh, an adult voice dubbed over a child actor. Yeah. Um. And again, just because like my like my investment in the story, because I think because he was like a fair and just ruler, and he had his his head on his shoulders. That was a bad fucking statement to make. Um, I I think he, like like the doctor. I do feel sad at, at his passing. I don't. Okay. Because he killed all his own people. Mm. Yeah. He wanted to destroy the weapon. Fine. Why are you killing the green primitives and the priests? You can't leave. This was your choice. Fine. Mm. Tell the rest of them to fucking leave. There is something ringing in my head there now in the sense of another solitary being makes a decision for his entire race and in that sense of like maybe we've lived too long maybe we've done this that and the other and he blow and he destroys them all now i can't think of i think it's driving me crazy as to what it is because i remember i think of there's something like it and it might actually be a doctor who the only thing i'm thinking of is the uh oh i can't say it because i don't know if norma's listening um the end of stargate sg1 yeah but that was a communal decision. Yeah. Um, because there was no reason, like, okay, the the green primitives mm-hmm. were the devolved form. There was nothing to say that they couldn't, on their own, mm-hmm. develop their own culture and evolve again. Yeah. Why kill them? In, in terms of your colonialism... Um, these are the Native Americans, or these are the Aborigines, or mm-hmm. these are Native peoples. What the fuck? Now, th- this is the thing where, and it actually just kind of sprung to my mind because I didn't actually look at this angle a whole lot while I was watching it. Um, we've talked about the the religious aspect of mm. what this bomb represented, and the doctor is like the doctor is trying to stop them like the primitives and the greys alike the greens and the greys from g- going to it he's trying to stop them and the master says it's pointless come on away mm. and there is something very like as i i used the term earlier on the like, you know, um religious fanaticism mm. there there is like to me anyway there's a slight element of that in the sense of um Kind of like, you know, if you go back to you know, the golden calf with the Hebrews, like you know, they so mm-hmm. adored this bloody thing that they, they just didn't give a fuck that supposedly it was breaking a tenant of yeah. their so 
maybe kind of like that. No, in my head, it might be like like that, where like the ruler has just kind of went, you know, do I fuck this golden calf and anyone that worships it? Mm. Um, getting very deep here. <laughs> but see, <laughs> but again, like th- this is why I love doing this because we've now, okay, you could say the outward facing thing is it's a metaphor for colonialism. But also, like, there's the, the, I don't know whether it's intended or not, but for me, there's a subtext of what religious fanaticism can do. Mm. And as I said, the power that appointed figures in a certain religion have, mm. and they can use it to sway people against the accordance of what the tenets of that religion are. So an interesting prominent prominent character section. <laughs> yeah, they're very interesting. Like, yeah, Bernard K and, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, how about we move on to the less complicated <laughs> talking points of the villains? Yeah, what a, what a there's one room. person I want to discuss that you added on this list, and yeah. I don't see why. Okay, I don't know why he was in the villain section. I don't know why we're even bothering to talk about him at all. And that's Norton. Right. Contribute. He's a very effective spy that you can tell is a spy within the first five seconds. Oh, yeah. I don't know what else there was to say about him. <laughs> so, this is going to sound kind of strange now, right? And like it might be a bit of a reach, but then again, I've been reaching a lot in this particular fucking story. Do you remember Roger and Simon from the massacre? Yes. Essentially, the two attack dogs of hmm. Tabania. Yep. Ah, callback. <laughs> That's what Morgan and Norton kind of felt like here. They they felt like to me they felt like dense right and left hand men. And I like no again you could say the same thing for Morgan. Like there's not really a whole lot here beyond his fucking the fact he's a hired muscle. And he doesn't really give a fucking shit over the fact that innocent lives are being killed. Mm. Whereas with Norton, like I I there's a for me there's a great sense of satisfaction in his death because. Mm. Um, he didn't kill anyone else after his cover was blown. Like he fired, mm-hmm. he fires into the crowd of colonists, miss, and David just fucking nails him. And I, I that was for me that was greatly satisfying because more so than Leeson's brother, I hated the fact that the engineer and the primitive were killed by him. Yeah. I fucking did not like that because, like you, I enjoyed that friendship. Um, I think my difference between Norton and Morgan, and we'll probably do Morgan next, mm-hmm. is. Morgan had a more direct impact on the story as it progressed. Norton, I kind of kept forgetting he existed. Yeah, like is he with with he, Norton? Because he was effective, but also not effective. Yeah, like he didn't turn them against the primitives. No, he didn't. But like I see, there was times where I'm like, okay, you're about a son as a brick to the face by virtue of the fact like you you know that he's a spy within the first couple of seconds because if another colony touches on the planet why the fuck didn't they reach out to the existing colony hmm. or if you were here before same thing again um but like there was just some su- little for me subtle things like making sure that holden was the only one that was capable of fixing the power system or the only hmm. one who's capable of handling it or no, Joe could see right through him from what I could see. Like Joe's like calling yeah. his bullshit, like continually playing on suspicions of others, kind of like playing a game of resistance, you know, just like basically sewing shit where you fucking could. But he wasn't wearing a hat, so uh, that kind of throws that whole theory out of the <laughs> equation. He also wasn't redheaded. But yeah. uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I just like, I thought he was 
there I was I was just waiting for him to get his fucking comeuppance and just yeah but, I suppose I, my days I'd probably put him up there with Mary he was there yeah he just did a bit more than Mary though in the overall grand scheme of things <laughs> I, I don't I'm not saying it like I don't know this is just me like um, I, I wouldn't have listed him personally but okay Paddy says the list so <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that was like you know last week like you know you had like Windsor and Hardy man like and they're I didn't even rate fucking prominent character status because they're just and even though Hardyman had a fucking great death sequence hmm. um, so then we've got Morgan who's like the next step up the chain who mm-hmm. like I, I would sort of describe Morgan and Dent as the brains and the brawn oh yeah because Morgan is definitely the brawn hmm He's not as intelligent as Dent, though, in fairness to him, mm. when um, they were captured, yeah, and he seemed to turn turncoat against Dent, that was very intelligent. It was. All the rest of his plans, though, suck. <laughs> yeah. He's much more of a brute force type guy <laughs> than he a is, subtlety guy. <laughs> he is, and like the scary thing about him is that... And the same thing with Norton as well, is that the way that they so casually treat the lives of innocent people, mm. it's almost like a game. Yeah. And <laughs> some very weird, like a very weird metaphor came into my head there, like Dent is the Emperor, Morgan is Vader, and Norton is Mara Jade. <laughs> you know, Mara Jade comes good. Yeah. Eventually. So we wait for like Norton's twin brother. Or I, I don't see Norton marrying David. Like, no, I don't. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> personally speaking, <laughs> I would more in, in that particular analogy. Yeah, I would consider Caldwell to be married. Right? Yeah, uh, that's a weird analogy that just came into my head. Um, but anyway, Morgan, yeah. Ca- all that, can, that comes into my head is like, you know, Morgan's, Captain Morgan's rum. Um, but yeah, he's just like, it's a game to him, as far as mm. I can see. Yeah, and I agree. That, like, for me, that's like, I always hate seeing that. And I hated it in the massacre because they just, they thought it was a game. They hated the, the Protestants so much. And it was just like, it's kind of despicable. Same with Morgan here. But yeah. not as despicable as Dent. Asshole. What a fucking... Just, just asshole. How many bodies are in your awake, you fucking psycho? Jesus, the guy, he, he cold-blooded, calculating. He's just pure fucking evil. What really gets me, right? So, he's an asshole throughout, right? Hmm. What really gets me is that farce of a court he held. Hmm. For Ash and David. Yeah. What the fuck? Like, that would, that to me is, you're just an evil asshole. Like, Morgan, I wouldn't say is evil. Morgan is an asshole. Hmm. Who's perfectly willing to kill anyone to get his own. You know, he's a bit like, what's his face from Ambassadors? Um, Regan. Yeah. Not as intelligent, though. No. Dent, though, is evil. 
oh, he's pure fucking evil. Like, he's like the representation of, you know, the old time prospector or like, you know, fucking oil barons or gold barons, which is like, fuck everyone that's going to affect my profit margin and my condo. It's like... You were comparing this story to like a Western, right? Mm-hmm. The only I'm not a big Western fan, right? Sorry to those of you who are. <gasps> the only Western or like Western themed things that I really watched and enjoyed are one, Australia Dance with the Wolves, and two, Doctor Quinn. Aye, right. In terms of American westerns, mm-hmm. also the film Australia is fantastic, Western, but that's not count in this particular mm-hmm. example. And Dent just reminds me of, um, oh, what was his name? Oh, young American military general. He was an asshole. In Custer. Oh, I, I, see, I haven't seen Dr. Quinn now in fucking Yonks. Custer in Dr. Quinn mm-hmm. is dead. He is evil. He plays at everything he doesn't care who dies he's just an asshole hmm. if we're going with our westerns analogy dent is coster from specifically from dr quinn okay yeah like he's just he's a fucking psycho and i think for that character the actor is it's a great choice of actor because with his no the hairstyle at the time you know the 70s hmm. But with his hairstyle and his physical features, he looks very Roman, mm. like an emperor or that type of thing. So like he has that air of superiority just by looking at him. The thing that I find really scary about him and that really puts him in the evil category mm-hmm. is his facial expression never changes. Yeah, it's just that con- continual patrician stone-faced thing. Yeah. And, it, and he, actually all that really moves is the bottom half of his mouth and his eyes are constantly like at a downward angle as if everyone who he's speaking to even when he's sitting down Mm. is beneath him yeah dude's a fucking psycho yeah (laughs) and lastly we have the master Mm -hmm. um for me okay this is the master i wanted to see we have a solid game plan Mm -hmm. right he wasn't relying on anybody else no. because he says he's been to multiple planets already. Mm-hmm. The fact that the doctor was here was a coincidence. He would have found the primitive city by himself eventually. Mm-hmm. This is this is what I've been missing from the previous three stories where it was him using or being used by another race. Here's just him by himself. Yeah. Doing his own thing and having his own plan. Very good. <laughs> This is what I wanted. I I agree with you. Like this is because like one thing I love, and it's I think a great example of this are the three characters of the Kingpin, Kilgrave, and Cottonmouth from the Netflix Marvel series, mm. because they all have something very good in common. Yes, the hero could beat them physically Mm. but by attacking the villain there's a lot of landmines that are going to go off if you raise a finger against them with cotton motor was i'll harm the neighborhood 
with Kilgrave, it was like, you have no idea what triggers I've set up in people that if they hear I'm mm. dead, what's going to happen to them? And with Kingpin, it's like, I'm going to tear this neighborhood to the ground. So And also beat you to death with a door. And beat you to death with a door. Whereas with the Master, granted, no, it's not something so grandiose, but it's like, well, I have my identification papers. I have a ship that looks like it's from Earth. What do you have? Mm. And that is brilliant. And again, the chemistry of Roger Delgado and John Pertwee going like, you know, going head to head like that. It's fantastic because it really sells it. I also love the idea that he was actually going around planet to planet, yes. actually adjudicating issues. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is one way to get into the planet, like unobserved. And just yeah. I think what I like about this story at the core, so I mentioned last week that last week we really got the sort of mm-hmm. sibling-esque relationship between the Doctor and the Master. I felt that was really prominent last week. Mm-hmm. This week, I think we really get to the core of the difference between the two of them. Because, yeah. you know, what makes the Master different from the Doctor? The Master, they're both renegades. Mm-hmm. And here we have the two of them in that room discussing something completely fucking terrifying when you think about it in context, right? And you have the Master saying, come on, come with, come with, come with me on this. Mm-hmm. Does be great. You're like, we're both renegades. This would be brilliant, whatever. First of all, good thing he didn't um team up with the fucking warlord or war chief, whatever the fuck his name was. Yeah. Um, but one travels the universe in search of power, and one travels in search of the universe. One is a genius, the other is insane. <laughs> yeah. Some good that one. Speaking of the renegade component, mm. um. I think that that part, while it is, it's a cool sequence, you know, mm. it's a small bit of how much of a dumbass are you? Because the last time the doctor said, come on, let's be renegades together. He fucking tricked you and sold you out to Axos. Or he didn't sell, you to, he didn't sell you to Axos. He was willing to fucking trap you in a time loop, you know, so you may not, and like you may want to fucking think twice about offering to share power with him. Or no, but le- one of those things about though the the arch nemesis character. Mm. You, you spoke about Kilgrave a while ago. Kilgrave wanted Jessica mm-hmm. on his side. I went to extreme length yep. to get her on his side. It's the same thing, particularly with, it's like, you know, I'm not a big DC fan, but Batman and the Joker. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Yeah, he just wants Batman to cross that line. Yeah, do you know, it's this love-hate thing that, you know, you could blow completely out of proportion and kind of do, like, you know, the Master loves the Doctor so much that he'll take any relationship with him that he can or whatever. (laughs) But I think it's a very sort of archetypal arch-nemesis type thing. It's a very, it's a very cookie-cutter way of doing it, you know. But I I think it's effective with these two. Yeah, like it makes for like great interactions between the two of them. To go, don't get me wrong, but it's like <laughs> the master never learns. Yeah, just 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 don't try so hard. But one thing that he, uh, I did, I think it's my last point on him, is like so we've seen the doctor or sorry the master take on like you know or pretend to be you know he pretended to be Colonel Masters, he pretended to mm-hmm. be uh, Ke- uh, Kettering, no Kellerman. Kellerman. Yeah, or no, just Professor Keller. Sorry, uh, and then what do we have in Axos? No, he was just the master in Axos. But 
I like this one because it shows the, the master's ability to seamlessly blend into whatever role he's pretending to be. So, mm-hmm. like, as a royal, like, you know, as, like, an appointed adjudicator from Earth's government. As opposed to, like, and it, for me, it's slightly different because he's, in the other one, in the other two stories, he created completely fictional characters. Yeah. Where here he's acting as a representative mm-hmm. of Earth's government in an official capacity. And it, it's great. Like, like he, he plays the part amazingly. And it's like, Jesus Christ, I actually feel like I am watching a proper adjudication going on here. Yeah, and if this planet hadn't been the one that had the doomsday weapon, yeah, he would have picked up and moved on to the next one. Yeah. <laughs> Hoping that each leap would bring him home. <laughs> <laughs> Solving wrongs. And <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> So we have leaped from the character discussion section into the overall section. Uh, you said leaped and my brain went leapt. <laughs> leapt. <laughs> Quantum leap. <laughs> yeah, because like, there's a town in Ireland. Like, I, yeah, some people call it lep and it's like, well, it spells leap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christ. That's like spa and spa. <laughs> so... Overall section, as always, myself and Trish will give our scores out of five based on everything we've discussed. So would you like to go first or should I go first? Okay, so let's put it this way, right? Okay. You want to have a little bit of a pre-talk? Yes. Because we, yes, we I did. mentioned how, again, on the Blu-ray, and mm-hmm. yeah, I have the Blu-ray set, so I, I refer to it a lot. Um, Janet Fielding had said that this story wasn't particularly popular with fans. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if we would agree, A, with that apparent judgment by the fans. I won't say it's Janet's judgment because it was her saying the fans were mm-hmm. kind of And if we'd agree with each other. And we kind of realized going in that <laughs> our scores were probably not going to be the same yeah. this time around. Yeah, like so myself and Trish, like you would be a case of like if one of us will say, Oh, well this will be an interesting story to score. And if the other person going to goes, Yeah, then it's like, yeah, we're kind of in the same ballpark. But when Trish said it to me, I was like really so much which one we're we're at vast ends of the spectrum here like, like for a long-term listener like for newer listeners myself and trish haven't had like a hugely disparate scoring since the faceless ones which i think you had like at like a nearly at a four and i was like down like a two 2.5 i think yeah let me let me just find it uh yeah the face ones i had 3.5 and you had two yeah so like i, I think usually that, we're within like Point 0.5 yeah. or 0.25 of each other. Yeah, I think we broke Paul's head like he was... <laughs> with that was how are they so far apart? Um, right, so... I'm kind of tempted to go with the scores first. Okay. And then go with the thoughts just to see how disparate our scores okay, were. Okay, cool. So... What did you give? 4.5. <laughs> oh. 2.5 <laughs> wow okay a new record fuck <laughs> this is our biggest gap I think yeah ever yeah could it be ever I think it's our biggest gap ever I'm having a look I, I need to look this up because yeah it, it is you like yeah like a point a piece we've done before yeah 
never really more than that. What, what was our scoring difference on an unearthly child? The actual version. A point. All right. Yeah. Same with Space Museum. That was a point piece. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Everything else is like half point, point seven five. Yeah, this is the biggest difference we've had. Ever. <laughs> yeah. And I think we were like one apiece in terms of like because I rated the Space Museum higher than you rated it, and then you rated Faceless Ones higher than I rated it. Uh, yes. Cool. And yeah, yeah, no, that, cool. that was the way. Yeah, I'm was. back in the lead. <laughs> right. So, who? How about we end on a high, and I do my bit first. <laughs> cool. Fair enough. I think this was two stories that they merged into one. <laughs> well, it does have that element, seeing how the master only comes into the story halfway through. Yeah, so you have the colonists versus the miners, which could have been its own thing. Mm-hmm. That could have been its own story mm-hmm. in its own right. And so, too, could the doctor versus the master in the doomsday machine. Mm. Like, the fact that the, that the novelization of this is called Doctor Who and the Doomsday Machine. Yeah. And said machine doesn't get mentioned until episode five. It's ridiculous in my mind. Yeah. So I think this was very much two completely different stories. And in my mind, they had two scripts and they were like, well, we actually only have six episodes, not eight or 12 episodes available. Mm. We'll just mash the two of these together. There is no reason for these stories to be linked. Other than it's the doctor's first time off world. Hmm. that's it like the primitives seem so out of place in the colony versus minor storyline you could have completely removed them and that story makes perfect sense on its own it doesn't need them they provide nothing to it yeah your man was trying to frame the primitives but that didn't work no do you know he could have gone in with the fucking claw thing and tried to make it out that like the monster killed him or whatever. Like they removed the primitives from that side and it doesn't work. And the doomsday weapon isn't actually explored until episode five. Mm. <laughs> you go through four episodes, but it, it yeah, it gets mentioned by the Time Lord High Council at the beginning, but then you've got four episodes where it's not mentioned at all. So why bother combining the two? So there's that, right? And that for me was a major thing because I was watching it going, when are they going to mention this weapon? When are they going to mention this weapon? And when the Doctor and Joe were first captured, I thought that was when they were going to mention the weapon. Mm. And they fucking didn't. And I was like, okay, what the fuck is the point of this? (laughs) The other thing that I didn't like is to do with the colonization aspect of it. Okay. There's a part of this that irritates me to no end. And this is going to be me on a soapbox for a moment, right? Mm -hmm. Ash says he surveyed the planet. Yeah. And there was no indigenous people found. Dude, you give them food. What the fuck do you mean there's no one there? They say at one point the only living things on this planet are insects and birds, I think they said at one point. Yeah. People fucking live here. Like, 
it's taken the colony aspect to a whole new fucking level if in the 25th century we're still going to a planet where people already fucking live and going I claim this planet in the name of whatever like you can't claim we live here there's like 5 million of us do you have a flag it's like what the shit that point was interesting because like again like we've seen times where like it's we've seen times where it's like bad writing because they've they have forgotten what they have fucking written and now maybe they tried to cover that up because when like ash says i think that he was when we did the initial scans there was nothing there i may like i think they try no this is me again probably reaching try to kind of retcon that or approach that by saying like it was an out-of-date ship when we first got it so defective scanners and we and we know then like that obviously they landed so they can't fucking leave again because the ship is a piece of shit so yeah but at least like they're saying like the colonists are saying this is our planet oh yeah no it's not you are guests on this planet yeah if anything do you know and like because it goes unmentioned Hmm. that if the colonists leave dent is going to kill the primitives of course the other thing that i don't get is okay if we say that somehow ash has developed a certain relationship with the primitives right Mm -hmm. big brain baby primitive knows why their crops won't grow Mm. why hasn't he tried to find a way to communicate that with them they're taking his food and they know that and the big brain baby guy knows that more food won't grow Also, if it's radiation that's causing the crops to fail, how shit are your fucking scanners? Mm. And even the doctor says he can't find any reason why it won't grow, That then don't have radiation. This is what I mean. If you remove the doomsday weapon part, yeah, this story still stands by itself. With the doomsday weapon, it just creates all of these fucking plot holes that make no sense whatsoever. But for me, the, the kicker was they're trying to be this somewhat preachy story about how mining is bad and don't take natural resources away from an area or whatever while at the same time supporting colonization of a place that's already has people living there Hmm. and also ending the story with those people sacrificing themselves to save everybody else Hmm. no i'm i'm not a fan it rubbed me the wrong way. It was rubbing me the wrong way through the whole story. And when that pick off the end, I was like, oh, fuck you, story. And that's it. Now, on the other side, I did mention things that I did like. There were certain aspects of characters that I liked. I think for a first adventure for the Doctor and Joe, either one of them would have been good by themselves. So the Doomsday Weapon by itself or the Mining versus coloners, Colonizers on their own would have been good. That's fine. To be honest, I'm even struggling with the 2.5, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to drop it any lower, because I think a lot of my response is possibly overly emotional to it. But 2.5 is me being generous. Well, like, there's no problem. Like, if you want to drop it, drop it. Like, I mean, like, for fuck's sake, I'm recorded on air as saying, fuck the gunfighters. Yeah. No, I'm going to leave it at the 2.5. That was, that was the initial score that came to my mind last night. Mm. I think I'm just amping myself up talking about it now, but that was my initial score last night. Hmm. I'm going to leave it at 
how does that compare to your thoughts on why you gave it a 4.5? Okay. So, right. As you know, I'm a Western fan, so that was yes, that yeah. aspect of it. And, like, space westerns, they have to be handled in a certain way. Like, Firefly is a great example of a really good space western. Mm. Um, but, so, I just, I was excited to watch each new episode as it came out. Or, the, or each new episode as it aired. Um, which, like, you know, that, that's, for me, it's a good thing. Like, if I'm looking forward to the next episode, then I'm like, hmm, maybe I might watch it tonight. Mm. That's one thing. I enjoyed the performances by everyone. Mm. Uh, asshole and not asshole alike. Um, I enjoy the concepts it raised in terms of like colonists against home government slash big business, more so against big business in mm. the sense of, and like, you know, we've seen it, you know, in again, Westerns where small little town, um, you've got like railroad tycoons, oil barons, all this type of stuff want to take it over. And there's that, that, that struggle. Um, so there was that component of it. I liked, so I liked the introduction of the na- the natives and, or sorry, the primitives and the various levels of their society because, okay, at one stage you've got the thing of na- Aborigines, Native Americans, um, African tribes, whatever way you want to put it, and their, in- uh, their interactions with human col- or like white colonists mm. uh, so here we have the, the human colonist side of things and i like the the example of yeah look, okay we have that one that helps holden and he's not treated like a pet he's not treated like some sort of oddity mm. he's like like holden has a, some sort of a friendship with him which is great i and i would have liked to have seen a bit more of it uh, which I think would have added a much more emotional punch. Like it's emotional enough as it is, because if you think about it, it's like it's not fair. It's like a fucking yeah. horrible thing to happen. Um, then, like as as you were kind of talking about, you know, just the way that it was handled in terms of um, the sacrifice of the primitives so that the the colonists can stay alive. That side of things. And I'm like. From the, I'm kind of torn, like because from the you know from the colonial for the colonization aspect of stuff, yeah, no, like it, it's a fucking I hate that thing of oh for the betterment of this society, natives have to you know share that kind of bullshit. But then I the more I but I start thinking back as I said to the religious angle that I've actually discovered through watching this thing, and I as you know like I'm not a fan of organized religion, like you know faith in certain things I think is great because you know, it adds peace right to people's lives but when you have people actively telling you the rules and they're not following those rules I don't fucking like that I think it's bullshit and so with the more I think about it here it's like yes you have the leader who is capable of speech he seems to be the only one that's capable of speech and that, like, that is his biggest advantage but his disadvantage is the fact that he can't fucking move anywhere he's clearly reliant on a life support system and others to maintain his, or maintain that system. But the rest of his society seems to have devolved into sort of weird fucking cult. And I, I'm putting like the destruction of that society. So like down to the grays because they clearly enjoy their fucking religion from the, from granted now it's just all mo- acting through, you know, it's acting through actions. There's no, mm-hmm. they have no speech. They have nothing like that. So 
based on other similar stories that I've read and I've seen and that kind of stuff, my interpretation is that you have the guy at the top who can't really, unfortunately, do much, despite the fact that he wants to. But you have his underlings who are taking their power to the nth degree and creating this new fucking regime that the guy at the top has said, maybe it's time that this all goes away. Mm. And I, I, like, that is a story that like, I, I love watching, like, or like love reading. And it's like, you know, it's, I'm a big fan of the Warhammer 40k universe and there is a kind of an ongoing discussion like as like the more that that universe gets developed it's like okay you have the Imperium but is it actually fucking good like you've got one guy that's effectively a god even though he says he's not a god and he has this cult of fucking personality and then there's the whole thing of oh the chaos power just wants you to be free and it's like uh, like are they really that fucking good or are they really that bad so that added a new angle I th- yes I agree with you on the colonization aspect of it but then the religious aspect of it it kind of no one's saying it gates it but it adds another for me my reading of it it adds another layer to the story and i enjoy that thing of it and i've also said i like doctor who stories that actually make you think on lots of different levels um so if i was like i am tempted like i i'll be fair like i am tempted to drop it based on the the colonization aspect is that you put it down but i don't think i could drop it down hugely like i'd probably drop it down into maybe 0.25 or something like that because again i really enjoyed watching the story and i think out of all the ones that we've seen so far yeah i rated like mind of evil four i'd probably watch this first before i'd watch mind of evil mm. and so I think like and the other things that I just didn't like were I felt Joe was just a bit underused, which is a shame because I was really looking forward to seeing her being solo on the alien planet and seeing how she would adapt and overcome because I think she's fully capable of doing that. And the other thing was that like as as much as I could, I I could not suspend my disbelief over the fucking alien baby prop. Uh, like it just it actively fucking kind of I was like for fuck's sake this is the thing that I can't defend so I think I am going to leave it at 4.5 okay but I really enjoyed this overall discussion because <laughs> we like, we said from the start going all the way back when that you and I have very similar mindsets and we have very similar opinions on certain stories. Like, there are certain stories that we both know are going to be a five, and there are certain stories that we both know are going to be a one. But you've never seen this one before, have you? No. So I, I, lo- I love this because I love getting your opinion on stories that you haven't seen. I had never seen this season before, so oh, this is my first time watching this season. Excellent. This is fantastic, because I love getting your impressions on stuff that you haven't seen before. And I love revisiting my opinions on stuff, because the first time I watched this, like, again, I watched it late at night, and I was like, eh, it's all right, you know. Second time around, I appreciate it a lot more. But I think what would have raised my score on this hmm. is if the doctor had raised the issues that I pointed out. If the doctor had made the point of you are aware that you're both fighting over a planet that other people legally doesn't belong to either of you. Yeah. I think had they acknowledged that hmm. and worked it in, and particularly had the doctor acknowledged it, or even like had. Um, 
like how great would it have been if the master had been the one to say it hmm. like if the master had said like in his arbiter role mm-hmm. well clearly the initial scans were incorrect if you're saying there's a primitive species here you both have to leave yeah that's actually a really good point that would have been really really cool and it would have added another layer to the master which we know that those layers are there yeah and that would have been better for him yep because he doesn't want anyone on the planet so he can use the weapon mm-hmm, exactly so, yeah so there, there's small things like that that would have raised it for me but i, I totally get why you like it though um but you know, this just proves that while Paddy and I are very similar, we do not actually share a brain. Yep, true. Share rental space. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but like, uh, my point I was trying to make before I waffled on was that, like, there, are, like we was often said, like there are times that we are probably going to disagree on certain things. And it's just, no, it's rare, but it's always fun when we do. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at you, Marco Polo. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> And it reminds me of like a comment that Shane, one of our other listeners, made a long time ago. He said he really enjoyed it because you have a lot of podcasts that are on certain topics and the two hosts are in dead alignment every single time. Mm. Or it's a case of there's one contrarian. Like there's one person that has to be against and there's one person that has to be for. Yeah. And it's like, no, it's not always going to be the case. Like Or even like our discussion of the massacre. Do you remember at one point, as I said, as a historical mm. serial like, you know, historical drama. Like, I was, Jesus, I'd watch this all the live long day. It's a Doctor Who story. It's fucking trash. And my yeah. score is very high. And we were, like, aged. Like, it was like, how can you have it that high? And I'm like, yeah, like, it's bringing it back, you know? But, so, this has really changed the scoring for season three. Oh, sorry, not season has... three. Season eight? Eight. Yeah, I mean, it's changed the scoring on the average. Hmm. So, your average is now 3.63 and mine is 3.0. I do wonder, like, because, but the average for this story itself is 3.5. Mm-hmm. Because the difference between our scores is so massive. Yeah. So I wonder what impact it'll have overall. Hmm. Um, we'll, we'll have to wait until next week to find out. Yeah, because I'm just going back to our older um, seasonal averages. And, like, we're only, like, point, less than 0.4 continually different you know differential yeah. whereas now like we're above like a point like, yeah we're a half a point of difference so next week we're going to have a very interesting discussion because we'll have to decide which of us is saying the title right <laughs> <laughs> is it the demons or is it the demons we shall see we shall definitely see so join us next week where we're discussing the them them yes <laughs> <laughs> the fellas with the horns and the tails <laughs> right. so yeah join us next week guys where we'll be discussing the demons slash demons <laughs> bye, bye. bye.